Join us now for Education Matters, a weekly look at the real people and real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm Keith Poston. At a time of intense focus by state leaders on how schools are funded in North Carolina, a new study out this week shows a stark and growing gap between the highest and lowest wealth counties in the state, particularly urban and rural school districts. We'll discuss with one of the study's authors and two key experts on today's show. Before we tackle our main topics, we open with our headlines, a quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. The General Assembly does not appear ready to make changes to the K-3 class size mandate that has spurred calls for action from districts across the state, including a rally this past weekend in Raleigh. School leaders say the mandate to lower class sizes in kindergarten through third grade, while a good idea was not funded to account for the new teaching positions needed without sacrificing other teaching positions like art, music, and PE. They also say there isn't enough time or resources to create the extra classroom space needed. House Republican Educating Leader Craig Horn believes the General Assembly will take this matter up before the scheduled short session begins in May. Some school leaders say they are running out of time for action. Two Charlotte area communities, Matthews and Mint Hill, remain interested in breaking off from the Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools and forming their own charter school districts for town residents. This according to Representative Bill Brawley, a Rep Republican House member from Matthews who introduced a bill last year to allow the two communities to operate their own schools. Former GOP State Representative Charles Jeter, who now represents CMS, says the move would further segregate Charlotte area schools. Both Matthews and Mint Hill are more white and affluent compared to Mecklenburg as a whole. Representative Brawley, pictured here, says CMS should be more concerned that these communities no longer trust them to educate their children. Finally, while leaders in Congress have vowed to protect young dreamers facing deportation following President Trump's decision to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, last year, a plan still hasn't materialized. Some immigration advocates are worried that nothing will happen before the March 5th cutoff. Immigrants affected by DACA were brought to the United States as children. The Washington-based Migration Policy Institute estimates that a quarter million students have become DACA eligible since DACA began in 2012, and that about 9,000 undocumented but DACA-protected teachers work in U.S. public schools. Remember, you can visit the Public School Forum's website at ncforum.org, click on Education Matters, and read more about each of these headlines as well as other topics we cover each week. As I said at the top of the show, a new study is out just this week from the Public School Forum that confirms a stark and growing gap in how schools are funded across North Carolina. Joining us first to help us explain exactly what the report says is one of the authors, Lindsay Wagner. She is the senior researcher and writer at the Public School Forum. Lindsay, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me back on, Keith. All right, so this new report is just out. Here it is. It is the uh, 2018 Local School Finance Study. So it's an annual study that the forum puts out and has been doing for really for more than 20 years. So what exactly does the report look at? So this report looks at local school funding efforts across North Carolina, and it looks not only at the amount of money counties spend uh, on their schools, but also each county's investment relative to their taxable resources. Right. Now, so, so I guess in a nutshell, what did the report find? So this report finds what we've been seeing over some time right now, which is a chronic and growing gap in public school funding between our highest and lowest wealth counties. 
Um, We've got some graphs that we're going to we pull do. up on the screen that are going to sort of help illustrate some of this. Great. So with one of our first graphs, you'll see that the 10 highest spending counties spent an average of $3,103 per student compared to just $739 per student by the 10 lowest spending counties. That's a gap of more than $2,000 per student. And this spending gap has been widening every year since 2011 and 18 of the past 20 years. Now this is, the, so this is the amount of money that the counties themselves uh, contribute on top of state funding and That's federal right. funding. That's right. So um, in our next graphic, uh, you'll also note um, that Orange County, actually, it's the graphic after this one, but that's all right. Yeah. You'll note that the um, Orange yeah, County, which is at the top of the list, spends more than 12 times more per student than Swain County at the bottom. So our bottom seven counties combined, we find, spend about $300 less than Orange County spends on its own students. Now, I'll look at this chart, and I, and, and I, and I guess, you know, again, the, the primary funding for, the, for public schools mm -hmm. uh, comes from the state of North Carolina, about 60-some percent. So if the state is funding pr uh, primary, the, the primary funder, then so why does it matter um, that there's a difference in what the county spent? Right. So you're absolutely correct. The state is the primary funder for um, our public schools. But with this report, we find that local funding really has a significant impact on classrooms. For example... Our higher wealth districts are able to offer local salary supplements that are significantly larger than many lower wealth districts. That allows them to attract and retain talent in the classroom. Um, you'll also find that class offerings in our higher wealth counties are more diverse. Um, and finally, even basic classroom supplies, paper, pencils, that sort of thing that's really been chronically underfunded by the state um, is something that higher wealth counties can really fill in the gap with their resources and lower wealth counties cannot. Right. Now, um, why do we have such a gap? I mean, what, you know, is it uh, the, is it's not a priority for these other counties? Uh, mm -hmm. sort, of what's the, sort of what's the sort of story there? So with this report, we find that all counties are really trying to step up their game. Um, in 2015-16, the 10 poorest counties actually taxed themselves at nearly double the rate of our 10 wealthiest counties. Um, but because of disparities in real estate wealth, they just don't have uh, the taxable resources available to them to basically fill in the gap. So we're talking about uh, home values as mm -hmm. well as that's sort right. of uh, business. I mean, so that's where the money's coming. We're talking about local county taxes. That's right. Okay. So what else, so what is the um, so you said that they, they they tax it almost twice as much so but basically even with that um, and again we're, so we we saw a chart just mm -hmm, just pop mm -hmm. up the taxable real estate wealth per child uh, is just dramatically different. It's dramatically less. That's right. That's okay, right. so um, so sort of what's the uh, so what is the impact when you look at sort of North Carolina overall mm -hmm. as a state? So what does it look like? So I think this is best illustrated in our final graph, which really explains what the disparities in real estate wealth look like. And you'll find that um, our uh, real estate wealth disparities are really concentrated in our eastern North Carolina counties. That's where the low lowest wealth really. So everything, basically all that the big gray area that's that a really gray kind of area. east of I ninety five. That's right. So what we're seeing is those counties continue to fall behind in terms of resources available to their local schools. Um, this comes at a time when there's, as you said in your um, opening word, that there's a huge focus on how we fund our, our public schools. And I think that this report should be able to give lawmakers an understanding that whatever school funding mechanism they ultimately choose, there should be an emphasis on adequacy and equity 
in that mechanism so that we can mitigate some of these disparities in wealth. Great. Well, I appreciate you being here, helping us understand the report a little bit better. Great. Um, when we come back, we're going to be joined by two of the smartest people I know when it comes to school finance, Eric Houck and Chris Nordstrom. But first, see if you can answer this question. True or false, all school personnel are funded by the state with local districts only funding buildings. Welcome back to Education Matters. Did you correctly answer false? Even though it is true that the base salaries of most school positions, including teachers and principals, are funded by the state, local districts and county governments are funding a growing number of personnel, including more than 5,000 teaching positions and more than 800 principals and assistant principals across the state. Up next, we have two of my uh, go-to guys when it comes to school finance. Uh, we have Chris Nordstrom. Chris is an education and finance policy consultant. He spent nine years with the General Assembly's nonpartisan fiscal research division as the education, the education budget guy for One. all members of the general. One of the guys, so we'll say that. And then we've got next to him is Dr. Eric Houck. Um, Eric is an associate professor of educational leadership and policy at UNC Chapel Hill, and he literally teaches a class on school finance. So, um, and according to his op-ed in December in the News and Observer, he talks about school funding at cocktail parties. So, <laughs> so only we, until they leave me alone. Exactly. So we've got the right guys. All right. So look. There's a General Assembly Task Force on Education Finance Reform. There's the Governor's Commission on Sound Basic Education. There's My Future North Carolina. There's an actual Leandro case going on. So sure seems like something is going to change in school funding in North Carolina uh, in the next year or so. I guess my question I'll ask you first, Chris, sure. does it need to change? Yeah, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for improving the way we fund public schools. And I think the... Um, main way to think about that is you know, probably something Eric and I both agree on. The two main things that um, any policymaker should be focusing on is the adequacy of the system. You know, is there enough money overall? Is the pie big enough? And then the equity of the system. So how do we divide that pie to make sure that the school districts with the greatest needs are getting the biggest slice of the pie? Right. Now, there was a, this, this sort of, the, the, at least the task force itself kicked off with a, um, a report that uh, was done by the Program Evaluation Division. Mm -hmm. We actually had one of the authors on this show to talk about it. Now, um, yeah, there were some dis there were some questions about that report. I think you had some uh, you okay. had took some issue with it. I mean, it, it basically said the whole the, the whole system was just broken. And um, I mean, is that um, I guess sort of where do you where do you fall on that on that point? Well, you know, that report you mentioned um, didn't look at the question of how the system is uh, performing in terms of adequacy or equity. Um, and then it made a series of recommendations on changing the existing system that actually would have shifted money from poorer districts, you know, slightly, there's not a huge shift, but from poorer districts to the slightly wealthier districts. Um, so I do have some issues with that report. That said, you know, th there is great room for improvement. Um, you know, I think our, our funding at about, what, 42nd uh, in the nation per right. student, um, is a great indication per that people spending, per people right, spending, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a great indication that we're behind in adequacy. Also, if you look at our funding effort, you know, what we spend on schools in relation to our state's GDP, we rank incredibly low compared to other states, indicating that we're not trying hard enough to fund our public schools. And then, if you look in terms of 
um, equity, you know, I, we see every year that the school performance grades that come out, we see that school performance grades are very closely related to the free and reduced lunch rates of public schools, indicating that school performance is very closely tied to uh, socioeconomic factors and that the state isn't doing enough from a financing perspective to help school districts and schools overcome those poverty-related barriers. Well, that's a great, that, mm -hmm. that last point, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Eric, that's kind of one of your issues with uh, why we should go to a, a weighted student funding form or a, some sort of weighted funding formula. For our viewers, we've, we've talked about this before. Sure. We, we have an allotment system today, right. um, basically, you know, that, that funds schools based on how many positions they should get. Yes. Um, you're advocating, and, and certainly part of what the, the report from the General Assembly that came out said, is that we need to move something that, that is more weighted. Explain that. Sure. Well, first of all, just to reinforce Chris's point, you know, any funding model that provides insufficient resources into school systems is not going to work. Um, what uh, I've been thinking about and, and talking about is moving to a system uh, where you uh, articulate specifically uh, how much more you want to spend per disadvantaged pupil in a pupil funding model. Uh, currently, if you took the disadvantaged funding supplement that the state provides along with the low wealth supplement, it looks like it's about a 10 or 11 percent premium over what uh, a non-poor student would bring into mm -hmm. a district. Um, that's wholly insufficient and inadequate. Um, and, and, I mean, that's just and that's based on just, just a, it, it just takes a lot more, I guess, you know, wraparound services, additional supports for those exactly, children. Right? Exactly. Okay. If you think about the resources that benefit kids with higher educational needs, uh, those resources cost money. Uh, and it can be a lower pupil-teacher ratio. It can be wraparound services. Um, and, you know, estimates would range anywhere from, say, a 60% to 90% premium if you're looking at uh, educating those kids. And if we're looking at 11%, we're far below the standard. The idea of moving to weighting would say, let's make those numbers explicit, right? So take them out of some other separate formula that sits on top of an allocation model and say, this is what the state's committed to in terms of uh, addressing the needs of higher uh, educational needy kids. Now, uh, Chris, one of the things that I've heard some folks who are expressed concerned about the uh, weighted student funding formula is that it's frankly a little bit of um, uh, skepticism that it actually, uh, that if you, if you identify it per student, it actually can make it a lot easier for the General Assembly, which has been very focused on privatization and school choice, mm -hmm. uh, vouchers, that if you, you, you identify <coughs> those numbers, it's very easy then to just sort of send that money out to private operators. Is that something that you, you think is a valid fear? Yeah, that is a concern. Um, you know, in addition to adequacy and equity, another factor you want to see in your school finance systems is um, some level of consistency um, okay. that school districts need to know before the school year starts how much money they have to work with for the year so they can do budgeting and deploy resources We're dealing where with that they need right to be. now with Absolutely. the class size mandate, right? Absolutely. Um, so systems where you hear sometimes about uh, the money following the child or a backpack model where if a student leaves a school system midway through the year, that the school system's um, budgets would then be reduced on account of that student. Um, that's not very helpful for the systems that serve those students. Um, and in the end, not necessarily I have not seen any evidence that they're necessarily helpful for the students themselves. Right. Eric, let me ask you this. Um, you're familiar with the, the, the public school forum study, the one we that Lindsay talked about at the beginning. Yes. That big gap uh, between um, uh, the low wealth counties, I mean, is, is that something we need to address? 
I think it is. Uh, I think most uh, responsible school funding systems across the country take into account and build into their state level model that there's some level of local funding that needs to happen, sort of a buy-in model where you know the first 5% of your school funding needs to come from local sources before the state matches. And a lot of states also deploy a more state-of-the-art guaranteed funding model where if you're one of those uh, districts in eastern North Carolina and you're spending your political capital to raise your tax rates and you're asking your population to sacrifice more in terms of local property tax that you see a subsidized return on that right. and that that actually that money is actually worth more or spends more uh, and can bring in more educational resources. And that's a different model than um, sometimes we, you hear folks talk about don't Robin Hood, don't take from the... the, 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 the so you're saying it's an, an an incentive to give more money as opposed to sort of Correct. punishing the, you the incentivize, counties that do. Exactly. You incentivize effort rather than taking money away from districts, which is highly politically unpopular. Right. So where do you come down, Chris, on the just on the notion of, of weighted student funding formula? Are there other ways? I mean, can you weight by district? Can you, I mean, as we, there are, sort of what do you think if you sort of could, if you were in charge, mm -hmm. you know, what would you do? Uh, well, I'm fairly agnostic about the difference between a weighted student formula and our current allotment system. Um, I think at the end of the day when it comes to which model is more likely to deliver an adequate and equitable funding system, there's really not a huge difference between the two. Um, I think you know, if you look at the states with less student funding than us, you know, 11, 10 out of the 11 have weighted student system. So okay. there's no indication that a weighted student system does much to bring up your per student funding. And then also if you look, you know, there's several measures of equity, but you know, of the states, the 32, 33 states with less equitable funding than us, 29 of them have weighted student formulas. Right. So at the end of the day, uh, what I think is a lot more important than the model you choose is really the policy decisions made by the General Assembly and whether or not they will express, um, you know, have the political will to deliver a system and deliver the funding necessary to the right districts. Right. Last word from you, Eric. Do you agree? Sure. Uh, I think the point that uh, insufficient resources put into any kind of model is going to result in bad things for kids. Uh, I think that. Um, you know, we're, when Chris and I are talking, I think uh, a policy-first approach where you think about the people who are in power making these decisions is a really important component of, re of reforming school funding right. in North Carolina. But I also think creating structures that are more or less immune to bad political actors is also important. Right. And Excellent. Excellent point. Good conversation. We'll have you back because there's going to be a lot of this going on. Probably won't be happening right. in the next few weeks, right? So we're going to be <laughs> over this for the next year. So thanks so much. After the break, this week's Leadership Spotlight. Each week, Education Matters spotlights individuals demonstrating exceptional leadership in education in North Carolina based on nomination from you, our viewers. This week, we spotlight Ralph Capps, president of the Wake County Boys and Girls Clubs. Boys and Girls Club is a, a youth development organization. Our mission is to inspire and enable all young people, especially those that need us most, to realize their potential as responsible, productive, and caring citizens. 
It's a place where someone's going to pay attention to them, that's going to get after them when they don't behave, but also encourage them and support them along the way. It's the relationships that these kids build with the staff that make a difference. Our staff become to, to so many of these, uh, these kids. Uh, is that kind of that mentor or that person that they, that they don't want to disappoint. Or if they, if they fall short, they hate to go tell them they fell short. It means a lot for the kids to see that people in their community um, give back and actually care. It's not just the, the part-time and a few full-time staff that we have here that they see every day. To see people, um, community leaders, businesses, organizations, they see them in the club having hands-on experience with them. It really means a lot to know that people that they don't even know care about them and their, and their success. And the kids would probably say we make them do their homework every day. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure we make them, but they do their homework every day. And uh, so they'll, they'll have a period where they will come into the education and the learning centers or whatever and have that opportunity to do their homework. There'll be staff in there who will help them. Uh, and so we make a big deal of education. One of our youth of the year uh, last year was speaking about his experience and what the Boys and Girls Club meant to him and he said, my family, we're long on criminal records and short on high school diplomas. And he said, I will be the first person in my family to, to graduate from high school without a police record. And you can look at the statistics of the number of kids who, when they start failing grades before long, the next thing they do is they drop out and you hear a lot about the school dropout to prison pipeline. When you can keep a, a young person in school and they can move from one grade to the next on time and can graduate with a plan for the future, you have really impacted their, their lives in a very positive way. If you know someone that deserves to be recognized, visit our website, ncforum.org, and click on Education Matters, and you'll find a link to nominate someone in your community. After the break, this week's final word. The General Assembly is examining school funding through its Joint Legislative Task Force on Education Finance Reform. At the same time, the Governor's Commission on Access to Sound Basic Education and the My Future North Carolina Commission have both begun work. Lots of activity with school funding at the center of it. We have a unique and historic opportunity before us, but it is not without risk. Public education spending accounts for nearly 40% of the state budget, and it's the primary source of funds to educate the vast majority of children in North Carolina. In my perspective, any examination of school finance ought to start with these two questions. Are we providing adequate resources to every child? Are we providing those resources in an equitable way so that wherever a child is born or whatever their circumstances doesn't dictate the quality of their public education available to them? Basically, is it adequate, is it equitable? Now, we're not there today on either front. North Carolina currently ranks near the bottom nationally in per pupil spending, so you'd be hard pressed to find any school system that is adequately funded. As far as equity, the numbers in our local school finance report speak for themselves. 
Sadly, winning the North Carolina education lottery does not come from a scratch-off for a Powerball ticket. It's being born into one of our wealthier counties where you will likely have more highly paid and highly qualified veteran teachers and access to a much broader array of courses and advanced subjects. And you're likely to attend schools with enough resources and materials. Overhauling our school funding system has the potential to be the most positive game changer in education policy in North Carolina in 100 years. But if it's not done carefully, it also has the potential to become the mother of all unintended consequences. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for watching and we'll see you next week.